0: Well, good morning. I read a story a while ago, and I want to share it with you. It's a story about Chippy. Chippy the parakeet. Chippy the parakeet one day never saw it coming. One second, he was peacefully perched in his cage, and the next second, he was sucked in, washed up, and blown over. Didn't know it hit him. The problems began when Chippy's owner decided to clean Chippy's bird cage with a vacuum cleaner. You can see it coming. Well, the owner removed the attachment from the end of the hose and stuck it in the cage, and the phone rang. She turned to pick it up, and she, she barely said hello when, shoof, Chippy was sucked in. Well, the bird owner gasped, put down the phone, turned off the vacuum, opened the bag, and, and there, was, there was Chippy, still alive, but stunned. Since the bird was covered with dust and soot, she grabbed him and raced to the bathroom and turned on the faucet and and held Chippy under the running water. And then realizing that Chippy was soaked and shivering, she did what any compassionate bird owner would do. She reached for the hairdryer and blasted the pet with hot air. And poor Chippy never knew what hit him. Well, a few days after the trauma of that day, a reporter who had initially written about the event contacted Chippy's owner to see how the bird was doing. Well, she replied, Chippy doesn't sing much anymore. He just sits there and stares. <laughs> you know, it's, it's not hard to see why being sucked in, washed up, and blown over is enough to steal the song from the strongest of hearts. Can any of you relate to Chippy this morning? I'm not looking for a show of hands, but my guess in an audience this size that there are some who are sitting there going, yeah, I can relate, I can understand. You know, suffering will either strengthen our deepest beliefs and faith in God, or it will unravel the fabric of our faith, right? Right? If you're here today and you or someone you know is feeling a bit sucked in, washed up and blown over, and you have this glazed look over your eyes because of what you've gone through or are going through, then I've got some good news for you. No, I've got some great news for you. You can walk through the suffering, you can walk through the hardships, you can walk through the trials, you can walk through the difficulties, whatever they are, in a way that can move you into a closer and a more intimate relationship with Jesus Christ, and allow Him to be glorified in and through your life. And That's hope. That's good news. Because you know what? It's not about our comfort. It's not about our ease. It's about God, and about His glory. In his purposes in our life. We're in a series called Fresh Faith. And we've been discovering how our faith in Jesus Christ should impact every area of our life. And especially as we face life's difficulties and hurts in this world. And there's a lot of them there. I'd invite you to turn your Bibles to 1 Peter chapter 4. We'll be looking at verses 12 through 19 as we will discover that a faith that is not tested is really a faith not worth trusting, right? A faith that it has not been tested is really a faith that you might wonder whether or not it can really be trusted. If your faith has not been put to the test, pushed to its limits, challenged, then you don't really know how real, how authentic or useful it really is. And our ushers are walking. If you need a Bible, I would invite you to just raise your hand and they'll hand you a Bible. In 1 Peter chapter 4, verses 12 through 19, we will discover what it means to have our faith tested. Because a faith not tested is really a faith that's not worth trusting. Let me read those verses for you, beginning at verse 12 of 1 Peter chapter 4. Peter writes and he says, beloved, he has this term of endearment. Don't be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you as though something strange were happening to you. Let him not be ashamed, but let him glorify God in that name. For it is time for judgment to begin at the household of God. And if it begins with us, what will be the outcome of those who do not obey the gospel of God? And if the righteous is scarcely saved, what will become of the ungodly and the sinner? Therefore, let those who suffer according to God's will... Or God's purposes entrust their souls to a faithful creator while doing good. We will see at least five things in this passage of scripture, and there's much more there, but we will see at least five things in this passage that we should understand about suffering, hardships, and trials as a follower of Jesus Christ. First, expect suffering. Don't be surprised by it. Expect it. Don't be surprised by it. Peter writes in verse 12, he says, Beloved, don't be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you as though something strange were happening to you. Interesting that when some test, some hardship, some trial comes into our lives, what is what is our first response typically? Why me? God, I thought you had a wonderful plan for my life. and. I'm not sure that suffering and hardship was really a part of that wonderful plan that you had. Why me? It's oftentimes our very first response. We go, it's not right. It's not fair. I thought you loved me, God. What's going on here? That's our typical response to trials and sufferings that come into our lives. But if we looked at life, and if we viewed life as a schoolroom, okay? Life is a schoolroom of spiritual transformation, And God, as the all-wise, the all-knowing instructor, it should really come as no surprise when the pop quizzes and the regular exams are given. Don't be surprised. Tests in life, hardships in life should be expected. That's what Peter's saying. Don't be surprised when they come. You see, this cuts against the grain of this mentality that says when you surrender your life to Jesus Christ and become a follower of his, that everything is going to be absolutely wonderful and great and fine and no problems, no hardships, no difficulties. Well, that's a theology from the pit of hell. Because when I read scripture, it says, don't be surprised when the trials come. Because life is like a classroom and God is the instructor, the all-wise, all-knowing, all-compassionate God who is going to give us those pop quizzes and tests along the way. They're going to come. Tests should be expected. Growth as a follower of Jesus Christ and the transformation of your soul is measured by your ability to pass the tests that come our way without them shaking the foundation of our being or throwing us into some emotional or spiritual tailspin, the tests are coming. That's why we're told in the book of James, chapter 1, verses 2, 3, and 4, where James writes, he says, Count it all joy, my brothers, when, not if, but when, you meet trials of various kinds. For you know that the testing of your faith... And and James is talking about these are the things that the testing and the hardships produce in your life. It produces steadfastness, he says. And let steadfastness have its full effect. For that you would be perfected. Complete. Lacking in nothing, James says. Some of the reasons why hardships and difficulties and pain and hurt come into our lives as followers of Jesus Christ... It's to perfect our faith, to transform our lives and our souls and our very being so that we can better reflect the person of Jesus Christ in everything we are, everything that we think and everything that we do so that Jesus Christ can be glorified in us and through us. You know, realize you are in God's classroom of transformation where God is molding. He is shaping so that you can better reflect the person of Christ and his character. What's interesting, though, with God, if you fail the test, God doesn't put an F on the paper. God says, here, let me give you the test again and again and again. And again, and he's going to keep working with you, he's going to keep shaping you, he's going to keep molding you until you are able to pass the test to move on to the next thing he has in store for you. As the all-wise, the all-knowing, the all-compassionate, the all-loving instructor in heaven who's saying, I love you so much to see you stay the same way. I love you just as you are, but I love you too much to see you stay the same way. And if you continue to fail the test, you know what? I'm going to give you the test again. And I promise to never leave you, never forsake you, and I'm going to be there right with you every step of the way until you pass the test. Isn't that good? That's our God. Now, Peter goes on to describe some of the trials that we go through as, what does he say there? What kind of trials? What kind of trials? Fiery trials. Not just some inconvenience of an unexpected bill that you may get in the mail or getting stuck in traffic, or a flat tire on the way to work, or having an argument with your spouse. But Peter describes these trials as fiery trials. These are extremely intense, prolonged experiences that may even cause us to lose our life. We'll talk about that in a little bit. You see, if you understand your history a little bit here, this letter that Peter wrote was addressed to Christians that were scattered throughout the Roman Empire. He says that in the first chapter of, of his book. It was written around 60 A.D. The Christians, the church had been growing, Christians had been tolerated to some extent by society, but the toleration of the Christians was rapidly giving way to outright hostility. Rome had recently experienced the ravages of a great fire that destroyed a significant portion of the city and threatened the social and the government stability of Rome. You know who the emperor was? Nero. If you know anything about Nero, he was an incredibly evil person. And it was Nero who, in an effort to regain popularity with those in Rome, and appease the anger of the people, blamed the fire on the Christians, living in and around Rome. And so Peter writes and he says, Don't be surprised at the fiery trials because the Christians began to experience a tremendous level of persecution that the church had not seen before in its 60 years. Well, as a result, thousands of Christians were brutally tortured, murdered, burned at the stake because of their faith in Jesus Christ. And so Peter's reference to fiery trials as he's writing to these Christians scattered throughout the Roman world would have been particularly, it would have been particularly poignant and would have been clearly understood at the time by them. Peter may have even been thinking about Daniel chapter 3, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, who because of their faith in Jesus Christ, because of their faith in God, because they were unwilling to bow down to this golden idol of King Nebuchadnezzar, were thrown into the fiery furnace. And as a result of standing up for their faith in God and their unwillingness to put an idol in their life and bow down to this golden image, they were thrown into that fiery furnace. God brought them through that experience. And if you're familiar with Daniel chapter 3, not only were there Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego who were in that furnace, but there was also a fourth person that looked like the Son of God. And you see, friends, realize that no matter what we go through, no matter the intensity or the degree or the level of suffering and hardship we may go through, our Heavenly Father has promised to never leave us or forsake us. To always walk with us through whatever it is we're going through. Now, as I was reading a little bit about the brutality that was imposed upon the Christians because of Nero, it just brought incredible sadness to my heart. And I'm thinking to myself, I've never suffered like that. I've never really even come close to suffering like those Christians did or what other Christians throughout the world have. You see, we're not facing that level of persecution today in this country. There are many in other countries that are. And, and you know what? We may someday... We may someday experience a degree of suffering and persecution that the Christians did in Peter's Day, or that others have experienced in some other countries. But you know, the reality is we still have to deal with levels and degrees of trials and sufferings that come into our lives. And those trials and difficulties, those pains and those hurts, are real. They're real. And simply because they're not to the degree or the intensity of what others have experienced, for us, for you, they are real and they hurt. They're painful. And Peter says, don't be surprised. Even though they may be fiery trials, the question is, how should we react when those trials come? If they're fiery trials, how should we react? How should we respond Well, this leads us to the second truth about suffering. And Peter says, Rejoice in the suffering, don't complain about it. Huh. Rejoice in the suffering, don't complain about it. Look at verse 13. But rejoice insofar as you share Christ's sufferings, that you may also rejoice and be glad when His glory is revealed. Peter tells us to rejoice as we share in the sufferings of Christ. The word share is the Greek word koinonia that you may be familiar with. It means to share something in common. The trial and sufferings that we experience are designed to move us into a closer partnership with Jesus Christ. Whenever you suffer, you should be reminded that you have something in common with Jesus Christ who also suffered greatly. There's this commonality that we experience when we go through a suffering. Back in 2000, my wife Becky was diagnosed with breast cancer and underwent surgery and chemotherapy. And during that very difficult time and since then, there has been a unique camaraderie. There's been a unique connectedness that she has shared with other women who have gone through the exact same thing. Once you've gone through some difficult test, once you've gone through some challenging trial or hardship, and you meet someone that has gone through the same thing, there is a unique bond. Right? There is. There is a connection that is established that wouldn't be there if you hadn't gone through the trial, the difficulty, the hardship. It's been exciting to see how Becky's been able to say to other women who have had breast cancer, "I know your pain, and I know you're hurt, and I'm here with you, and I'm here for you." That's sharing in the fellowship of suffering, and particularly with Jesus or with other people. Now, you see, friends, when you experience the trial and the suffering. Of some physical, of some emotional, some relational pain, of, of betrayal, of rejection, of ridicule, of injustice. There will be a deeper fellowship with Jesus because He's experienced all of that as well. And He says to you, I know your pain. I know your hurt. I've been there and I have felt it personally and I'm with you through it. And so when you connect your pain to the sufferings of Jesus, it'll allow you to rejoice. I say it will allow you to rejoice in the great love that Jesus demonstrated for you and for me on the cross. So rejoice. But you might be saying, Come on, Kent. You can't be serious about rejoicing in the midst about the trials and the sufferings. And you see, I'm not suggesting that you rejoice because of the bad or terrible things that you're suffering. That'd be pretty sick to say, wow, I'm rejoicing. I'm praising Jesus that I have cancer. or I'm praising Jesus that I've just been persecuted. No, but in the midst of that. But what I am suggesting and what the scripture is telling us here to do is that rejoicing is a choice that we make it's a decision to do what is commanded by God not because it feels good but because it's the right thing to do God doesn't command hear me on this God doesn't command nor does he expect what can't be done of us If he commands it, it can be done. You see, rejoicing shouldn't just be a reaction to just the good things that are going on in our life and our world. That measures how you feel, right? But rejoicing, even in the midst of difficulty and challenge should be a reflection of a heart that is so completely in love with Jesus and convinced of His love for you that you know He is using this trial to transform your conduct and your character, which is for your good, and it's for His glory. And therefore you can, and you should rejoice. Not for that trial or difficulty but in the midst of that trial in difficulty are you with me on that you know the only way that you can interject praise into your painful situation is to have the kind of fresh faith convinced that god is still in control and sovereign rejoicing during painful times is a God-honoring, God-glorifying profession of your faith that when the world sees you are rejoicing in Him in the midst of the pain, the trial, the hardship, and the difficulty, they see it, they are amazed, and they are blown away by what is totally incomprehensible from a human perspective. That's why we rejoice in the midst of the suffering. That's why we rejoice in the midst of the pain and the hurt. And so we should expect suffering and not be surprised by it. We should rejoice in the suffering and not complain about it because God's using it to transform your heart and your life. And the third truth about suffering is that we should suffer for righteousness, not unrighteousness. Look at verses 14, 15, and 16. As Peter writes, he says, If you are insulted for the name of Christ, you're blessed. Because the spirit of glory and of God rests upon you. But let none of you suffer as a murderer, or a thief, or an evildoer, or as a meddler. Yet if anyone suffers as a Christian, let him not be ashamed, but let him glorify God in that name. Peter states that we can suffer for both right and wrong reasons. Since suffering and hardships are pretty much a guarantee in this life, we should always make certain that we are experiencing it for the right reasons. Okay? You know, when you experience some trial, some test, some hardship, and you're suffering through it, you need to ask yourself this question. Is this a trial that I'm going through? Or is this a consequence? Very important question. Is this a trial I'm going through or is this a consequence? For example, you've been laid off from your job. You've been out of work for a year. Your house is in foreclosure. The savings account has been depleted. Money is more than tight. It's just not there. So you rob a bank. I'm not suggesting that, but you rob a bank. You are caught. Sentenced to serve 10 years for your crime, and you end up in prison. And it ain't pretty. And either is your cellmate. Okay? Do you call that a trial or a consequence? I mean, don't be thinking in the midst of sitting in that prison cell, Wow, I'm suffering for Jesus. Isn't this awesome? No. You broke the law and are suffering the consequences of your stupid choice. The way out of a consequence, and this is important to understand, is repentance. The way out of a consequence is repentance. If you did something wrong and are suffering for it, you need to make things right with God through repentance and with the people your sin may have injured. If you're suffering for being a murderer or a thief or an evildoer or a meddler, well then, you know what? You're getting what you deserve. As I was thinking about that, those categories that Peter listed here this morning, I'm thinking to myself, okay, don't suffer as a murderer. That makes sense. Don't suffer as a thief. That makes sense. Don't suffer as an evildoer. That makes sense. And then Peter throws in, or a meddler. Ooh, what is a meddler? Meddler. So as I began to think about it and I began to read about it and and study a little bit more, I discovered that a meddler is somebody who actually engages in the lives of other people for their own personal gain and benefit. Or somebody who then, and the whole word is, it's a a very broad word that has a lot of connotations attached to it. Somebody who not only engages and gets involved in somebody else's life when they're not invited, but they do it for their own personal gain. But also, what's interesting here is that there is an, an element of gossip about that person's life, some things that you find out because you've engaged in their life. And I'm going... How many of us have found ourselves in a place where we have, because we maybe have gossiped about somebody, have done something, we stepped into somebody's life in an inappropriate, non-God-honoring way, that all of a sudden we've paid the price of doing that? I think we've all been there, to some degree or another. But I just thought it was fascinating that Peter here, he puts a meddler alongside of an evildoer, of a murderer, of a thief. And that certainly is an admonition to us to be very careful about how we engage in the lives of other people. And when we do that, let's be very careful that we are not gossiping about what we've experienced or what we hear, what we find out, because we may then suffer the consequences of somebody coming to you and go, did you say that? And you go, you see, it's a serious thing here. And Peter's telling us, he said, don't suffer for the wrong things. You know, you're going to experience enough of the hardships and suffering in life. Don't add more to it. It's stupid. A trial. A trial. Different than a consequence. A trial and the associated suffering or hardship is different. Completely different situation. A trial, a hardship, you didn't bring the trial and the suffering into your life. Cancer. The loss of a job, a spouse's unfaithfulness, an unjustified lawsuit, the death of a loved one, a prodigal child, a business deal gone bad, you fill in the blank with whatever the trial, the difficulty is that has come upon you, are things that God has allowed into your life for some reason. You didn't cause it. You didn't choose it. You could do nothing to stop it. Trials and the associated suffering are are things that we need to embrace and learn from. Consequences we need to repent and turn from. Does that make sense? with me on that? Are you with me on that? Okay. Now, if you're standing up for the name of Jesus... As Peter talks about here in these verses. And you are being persecuted. You're being tested and tried. And you suffer because of the name of Christ as a Christian. Realize the word says you are blessed. Because the spirit of glory in God rests upon you. Do you realize... That you are never closer, you are never more a recipient of God's grace, mercy, and strength when you are persecuted for the name of Jesus Christ and you're standing up for Him. The highest privilege that we have is to suffer for the sake of Jesus Christ. It was Stephen back in the book of Acts, Acts chapter 7, the first Christian martyr, we could say, other than Christ himself. But it was Stephen that, in Acts chapter 7, who, because of his faith in Jesus Christ and his, his desire to stand true for him, was put to death, was stoned to death, was persecuted because of his faith, and he lost his life. But what I love, that it says about Peter in verse 55 of Acts chapter 7, but but Stephen full of the Holy Spirit, gazed into heaven and saw the glory of God and Jesus standing at the right hand of the Father. There was this moment of incredible God happening in Stephen's life because of how he stood up for Jesus Christ. Peter says, You are blessed. Because the spirit of glory and God rests upon you when you are persecuted because of your faith in Jesus. But to be honest, most of us have not really experienced deep, difficult persecution of, of our faith. I know I haven't. You know, we may have been made fun of, laughed at, ridiculed, but persecuted? Like those that Peter was writing to? Probably not. Now that's not to say that we won't in the future suffer severe perse- uh, persecution for our faith in Jesus Christ. And when that happens, Peter's word is, don't be ashamed, don't be surprised, but take joy in it and know that you are blessed because you are suffering for Jesus. Well the fourth truth about trials and suffering, the fourth truth is that God is perfecting the church. He's not pampering it. God is perfecting the church, not pampering it. You've maybe heard the statement from James McDonald that God's love is not a pampering love. It is a perfecting love. And the truth is the same for the church. God is perfecting the church. He's not pampering the church. Look at verses 17 and 18. It says, For it is time for judgment to begin at where does it say? Where? The household of God, the church. And if it begins with us, Peter says, what will be the outcome for those who do not obey the gospel of God? And if the righteous is scarcely saved, what will become of the ungodly and the sinner? Not only do we as followers of Jesus Christ experience trials and sufferings that are allowed or directed by God, but there are times that the church, the household of God undergoes a refining process. I mean, if we as individuals go through trials and difficulties and sufferings, then we ought not be surprised when the church, a local congregation, goes through some trial or difficulty for the purpose of making that local congregation a place that better reflects the glory of God, the beauty and the magnificence of God. Realize that God has promised to build His church It's an unstoppable force in this world that when it's functioning biblically and has its priorities to make God famous and to put God on display, God is going to use that local congregation to see people's lives changed and transformed so that they can reflect the glory of God in this world because it's all about Him. But there are times, there are times, that the local congregation, if it's truly going to reflect the one that gave his life for it, then there will be a perfecting or a refining process to better prepare the church for the days ahead for greater work and greater effectiveness. That's what God was doing back in the book of Acts. When the church was first birthed and the church was growing, sin began to very subtly and quietly make its way into the church. And, and when it's God's deal, and the church is God's deal, it's not my deal, it's not Pastor Tim's deal, it's not the elder's deal, it's God's deal. When it's God's deal, and it's His glory that's at stake, He's not going to mess around. And that's why the judgment was so severe for Ananias and Sapphira, who were part of the church back in Acts chapter 5. Because of their deceit and dishonesty and their sin, God brought severe, swift, quick judgment upon them. He was perfecting the church. And as a result of that, the church grew even more. Remember the next time that some scandal surfaces in the church. This is important. Remember the next time some scandal surfaces in the church or some major issue of of, of sin are, are being addressed. Don't get discouraged. Don't get disillusioned with the church. God's refining it. So that as the Apostle Paul said about the church in Ephesians chapter 5, he said, Christ loved the church, gave Himself up for her, that He might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the Word, so that He might present, it says, the church to Himself. How? In splendor, without spot, without wrinkle, or any such thing that she might be holy and without blemish. It's God's church, it's His deal, and He takes His glory very seriously. You know, I get fired up about the church. I've given my life to serving in the church for the past 26 years. Because the church is the hope of the world because it's about God and His glory. And we need to be serious about this thing called church. And not just do church, but we need to be the church as we reflect the person of Jesus Christ in everything that we do and who we are. You know, as you look at this verse here, Wouldn't it really be better to be a part of the church that is being perfected by a loving, compassionate Heavenly Father than to not be a part of the church and experience His wrath and His fury and His judgment? It's your choice. It's really not a choice, though, when you stop to think about what the outcome might be. Better to be a part of the church because you've got a father who's going to compassionately, lovingly work in you and through you. Well, the final thing that Peter has to say about suffering, no matter what type of suffering you're going through, is that you must trust God with your pain because He knows. Verse 19. Therefore let those who suffer according to God's will, here Peter is just sort of summarizing this whole element of suffering, whether you're suffering for Jesus Christ, whether you're suffering for something that you don't deserve, it's just come into your life and your world. He says, therefore let those who suffer according to God's will entrust their souls to a faithful Creator while doing good. The word entrust, used there in that verse, carries the idea of handing something valuable over to someone. This is the exact same word that was used in Luke chapter 23, verse 46, where it says that Jesus breathed out his last breath on the cross, and he cried, Father, into your hands I commit or I entrust my spirit. If I handed my wallet to uh, to Jim and I said, Jim, in that wallet are my credit cards, bank account numbers, pictures of my family, a little bit of cash, not a lot, a little bit of cash. If I entrust that over to Jim here, I'm trusting it over to him because I know Jim. And I know that Jim is going to take care of my wallet and everything that's in there, Right? Okay, maybe I should give it to Steve Belzer over here then (laughs) The the point is When we entrust something valuable Into the hands of somebody else We're doing that because we trust them Right? Because we trust them And when we trust them We're willing to give over to them That which is most important to us That's what it means to entrust. It means to commit. And as Peter here talks about, he says, he wants us to commit our pain to God. You see, when you entrust your pain to Him, when you entrust your hardships to Him, when you entrust your sufferings and your problems to God who is your faithful creator You are taking your hands off of the suffering It's like when I handed my wallet to Jim. I'm taking my hands off of it And I'm allowing him to care for it and watch over it and when you entrust your pain your heartache, your hurts into the hands of God, you are allowing God to manage things because you're going, I'm taking my hands off of the pain and the hurt and the heartache. It was quite a few years ago, but I remember very clearly, even as I stand here today, remembering coming home one evening, and Drew, and I don't remember how old he was, but he was very young, was sitting on the floor surrounded by all of his Legos and Transformers and all of these other toys in the family room. And when I walked into the room, I said, Hi, Drew, can I have a hug? And I had my arms open, wide, thinking that he would quickly come running over and give me a hug. Instead, he began to pick up a bunch of his Legos, a bunch of his Transformers. He'd start to pick them up, and he'd drop, and he'd pick them up, and he'd drop. And I said, Drew, are you going to give me a hug? And he kept picking all these toys up, and he finally when he got his arms full with all of his toys, he came running over to me, And I was able to hug him. I was able to put my arms around him, but there was no way that he was able to put his arms around me because he was grasping on so tightly to his things that he thought were so valuable. And you know what? In the same way, when we are grasping so tightly to our pain, to our hurts, to the hardships, God's standing there with arms wide open. He's going... Please come to me. I want to embrace you. I want to hug you. I want to love on you. But I can't do it the way I want to. And you can't hug me the way you can and should. Because you're holding on to everything so tightly. That's what I think Peter meant when he said in verse 19. Entrust your souls. Entrust your pain. Entrust your very being to a faithful creator a faithful creator understand that you have a loving faithful heavenly father that wants to wrap his arms around you and he wants to make sure you are not alone in psalm 23 it's a wonderful reminder of god's presence in the deep dark valleys of life that we sometimes go through psalm 23 says that the lord is my shepherd I shall not want. He makes me lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside still waters. He restores my soul. He leads me in paths of righteousness for His namesake. That even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil. For you are with me. Notice the verse says, I will walk through the valley. You don't stay in the valley, you walk through the valley of shadow of death. You walk through it. And as you are walking through it, the good, faithful shepherd is with you, and you are not alone. Not alone. You may be here this morning, and you are walking through a, a deep, Dark valley. Experiencing some great pain and suffering. If you are, you need to know you are not alone. As a worship team comes to sing a song titled, You're Not Alone, I want to give you the opportunity today to release, to entrust, to hand over your pains, your hurts, your suffering into a faithful Creator who loves you with an everlasting love, who doesn't want you to walk through this valley alone because He's promised to be there with you. The worship team is going to sing a song, as I said, You're Not Alone. And as Stacy sings this song... I want to encourage you that if you are here this morning and you have been holding on tightly to your pain and your hurt and your suffering, in an acknowledgement and a desire to release that pain to Him as the song is being sung, I want you to just stand where you're at in acknowledgement of the fact that I'm releasing my hurts and my pain to Him.